And welcome to the Axiom Podcast. I'm Joey Brandon hosting today, and I've got a special guest, John McGuire. John, welcome. Very glad to have you. Good today. morning, Joey. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for being generous with your time and giving us part of your day. And you're on the podcast because you're the guy I know to go to questions with about ESOPs. So ESOP for the uninitiated is an employee stock ownership program or plan? Plan. Plan. Yeah. Okay. So employee stock ownership plan. But rather than me tell them about you, why don't you tell them about you, sure. who you are, what you do, who you do for, how long you've been doing it? What's what's John McGuire's MO? Well, my MO is I'm a Chicago native, moved here to Lakewood Ranch, Florida about 12 years ago. I've enjoyed a long career in the financial service industry for over three plus decades, started in 1987 and have continued my career since then exclusively working in the qualified plan marketplace. And for those of you that don't know, qualified plans encompass 401k, 403b, profit sharing plans, defined benefits, and ESOPs. And ESOPs is a relatively new area of expertise because it really allows me to kind of bring a culmination of three plus decades of experiences. And Joey, I'm what's called a cusper. Probably not a term you've heard of. No, I have not heard of a cusper before. Well, a cusper, think of it this way. Baby boomers were born from 1946 to 1964. And I was born in 1965, so I'm on the cusp <laughs> gotcha. of the baby boom generation. If you look at my iPhone, if you look at my favorite playlist, I'm a baby boomer. I'm stuck in the 1970s. So I have great affinity for the baby boomers. And what I realize is, is we've gone through a lot of transitions over the last couple of years with COVID and Right now, 50%, almost 50% of all private businesses are owned by baby boomers. So you just have to look at the financial tsunami that's going to be coming down for the next couple of years, or I call it the silver tsunami, where you've got baby boomers looking to retire. And there's, there's a desperate need for business succession strategies. And I think we've we've heard about, I've heard about this coming massive transfer of wealth from the baby boomers to the next generation. Right. And it's sometimes you can take it for granted that that transfer, well, that's handing the things from the parents down to the kids. Right. But that's not always, you know, the kids may not want the business. Parents may not want the kids to have the business. There may not be kids to hand the business to. So ESOPs are an option for transferring ownership that doesn't may or may not involve going to the market's find a buyer, you know, you don't have to worry about, I got to get my business ready for sale. So it is, it's going to play, you, you were talking earlier about this is the right time, mm-hmm. right? So this is the, to have this tool in your tool chest to deal with, it's one form of succession. Mm-hmm. And so you're playing in that space, but where, so what is an ESOP with employee stock ownership? It sounds uh, yeah. okay. Like we're going to give them ownership to the employees, but Kind of mechanically, what is it and how is it accomplished? Well, it, it, it is the company. It is the seller selling it to the employees. It's a financial transaction. And an ESOP, is, uh, we set up what's called an ESOP trust. And so basically, it's a holding vehicle for the transference of stock. Now, it's done by a series of complex financial transactions, 
part of it is going to be done usually with some type of bank financing. Later on, we'll talk about the role of government financing. And then sometimes it's accomplished by seller note financing. Seller note simply means that the seller carries the underlying financial note, but still there's been a transference of the actual stock. But what happens is, is, is that it is an actual transaction that allows the, the individual who's selling the company to be able to look at, depending upon what their timing is, they can you know, be able to walk away from the company and in doing so be able to do it where very often they're leaving in a company in a very strong position. You know, we'll talk later about what that means as far as to debt ratios, financial structures, and management. But the overall genesis is, is that the employees will be running the company in the future. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the owner is going to step away right away. The owner might want to stick around for two years or five years or even seven years. There might even be family members that the ownership that the seller wants to have be involved. They can keep that. So the key is, is and, and you're going to hear this time and time again during our discussion, it's all about flexibility. That's why I love working with business owners, where I work with financial advisors, I work with corporate attorneys, estate planning attorneys, accountants, all the centers of influence that have relationships with business owners. And these, you know, we're not going into sell an ESOP. What we're going in is we're going in to understand What's the needs, wants, wishes, dreams of the sellers and really understanding what do they want to accomplish? If they want to get out of the company, well, sometimes selling it to a strategic buyer is absolutely the right decision. In some cases, we've had the pleasure to work with a seller where there might be a private equity firm involved and we might take on a percentage of the stake with an ESOP, knowing that the private equity company may come back a few years later and buy out the company. There's a lot of different strategies that we want to look at, but there's not just one size fits all. Right. all. So the, the old adage, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We're trying to avoid that kind of thinking and going yeah. in and talking to these companies. What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? How long do we have? What is your desire for involvement? What's the state of your management team? And, you know, if the things look right, yeah, then an ESOP might be an appropriate vehicle. But before we get into some of that, ESOPs have been around for a while. But when, when you and I first began talking about this and I was introduced to you in the, in the last year or two, you highlighted to me, like, there were some actual legislative changes that took mm-hmm. place in, in the last several years and those have actually given you more flexibility or they've, they've enabled you to do more with ESOPs or open the, the door to ESOPs more frequently than may have been the case in the past. So talk about that a little yeah. bit. And for somebody who maybe they heard about ESOPs 10 years ago and it may not have been viable then, what's changed and why might it be more viable now? Sure. So going back a little bit, for the past 50 years, ESOPs have been around. 50 years, yep. okay. Yeah, and, and from that... You've, you primarily saw a lot of midsize and larger companies that moved towards the ESOP marketplace. For example, here in Florida, Publix represents the single largest ESOP in the country based upon Who's the number. Pub- I've never heard of this company that you Publix. Oh, they take a fair portion of my weekly income. 
<laughs> slightly higher these days with inflation. But originally, the founder of the company chose to set up an ESOP, and it it is now based upon number of participants. I think that there's over 200,000 participants in the ESOP. And I believe around 86% of the company is owned by the wow. ESOP. So the I think the Jenkins family still own almost 14% of the company, but you know, clearly over the years, each year a ESOP, it's a private stock. Each year, this ESOP has to be valued. And because of that, the Jenkins family has continued to enjoy the growth of their portion that's been growing during that time. This is interesting. I didn't know yeah. this before you told me yeah. that Publix was an ESOP. What was interesting to me is, you know, I, I'm a CPA by trade. And so when I came to this area, I had a tax and accounting firm and I would do taxes. And this held true in Ocala too, where, where I was working in my dad's tax practice after college. I would say one in five tax returns that came across my desk had a 1099 dividend statement from Publix. Mm -hmm. And these were people who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they had worked at Publix at some point prior, maybe in college or in high school or something. And mm -hmm. the managers had said, you know, when you get the opportunity once a year or whatever the, the timing was to buy stock or to defer your salary into stock, you know, do all you can, do all you can do. And these people would have held their public stock. But you're telling me that's a private stock and it's been paying dividends to those people yeah. on the basis. That's interesting. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that, so they have uh, dividend stock rights so that, you know, certainly a company can pay dividends and that can go into the ESOP. And I speak with many financial advisors around the state of Florida, and it is not uncommon for them to have an employee that started in their teenage years and worked their way up at Publix, usually to assistant store manager or manager or even higher. And so 25, 30 years later, they're retiring with millions of dollars in their ESOP and their 401k. And so my after doing this for 35 years, I really want employees to have a dignified retirement. Mm. I think that's something as a financial industry, we've been very good to be able to bring up the ability to help people save. But I think it's all about having a dignified retirement. And that's why ESOPs are so critical is because when you look at the overall balances that are attained for those participants, it's substantially higher on average by a ratio of about five times higher than the average account balance for the 401k. Wow. So we, we have to frame things appropriately. And your main question was what's changed if, if primarily midsize and large companies were doing it. What changed in 2018 was there was what was called the Main Street Act. And at the time, President Trump and Congress pushed through a bill that became law, but it only has been fully implemented within the last 12 months. And this is now allowing a lot of small companies, companies of 10, 15 employees. But what we really are looking at revenues and we're looking at EBITDA and net income, it's giving a lot of small companies the opportunity to be able to use what's called SBA 7A financing. And 
you're able to get that the, the financing in place that you're able to get potentially more cash at closing. Traditionally, when you're working with conventional lenders, especially if you're working with a lot of personal service companies, a lot of times when you try to do these transactions, there's not going to be a lot of cash at closing and it's going to be primarily seller note financing. So without going too far in the weeds, the SBA allows this government financing to be able to have more cash at closing with no personal guarantees. So now what we're doing is we're doing a meaningful exit strategy that's going to be able to help provide the seller more funds at time of closing and give them a viable path that depending upon what their time frame is, they could fully exit the company within a certain time period. So this ability for the SBA to get involved in transactions to a greater extent than they may have been able to get involved prior, yeah. you've seen open the door for more businesses to come to the table or more owners to come to the table and potentially get involved in an ESOP. Significantly. We're working with a surveying company right now and, and very excited where you know, I saw the, the deal come together starting from late last year. But this is an individual that bought the company, let's say, 15 years ago, and let's just say hypothetically for $5 million, and you jump forward, and this individual, the company is worth $20 million. And there were a couple associates that wanted to be able to buy out the company. But unfortunately, with the appreciation of the company, these, these associates could not. So what do you do? Well, it turns out that an ESOP became a very viable way where he had very good, competent management to take over for him. And really, the ESOP was the best way so that we were able to go to a series of different financial institutions. And we found one that was able to approve the underlying loan and then at the same time go to the SBA and get that approval. And in doing so, we're in the final stages of going to close. So just like buying a home, mm -hmm. there's going to be a formal close, checks will be released. But at that point in time, the company will become a 100% ESOP-owned company. And the associates who are going to be running the company going forward, they're incentivized two reasons. One, they'll participate within the ESOP they'll receive a future allocation of ESOP stock. But in, the, in addition, we're also putting together specialized, non-qualified, non-qualified, it's called 409A uh, stock appreciation rights. So we're able to do very flexible things to help build in the capabilities that they can participate on the upside growth of the company. The same way they would be able to if they were to buy the shares outright, but they can't afford that. So this is a way to kind of have your cake and eat it too. They, The, the people yeah. who are most instrumental in helping grow the company through the next cycle can reap the rewards of what they've been responsible for achieving. So That's exactly correct. And in this particular example, this company is, is going to become a tax-exempt company as of January 1st. So you told me this the first time, and I said, what? As, as a CPA, you're like, John, yeah. I know a lot. I had not heard that before. So I just want to talk about that for a second. Yeah. So it's my understanding from being educated by you that when you have a 100% owned ESOP, meaning the, that, that trust that gets set up, it buys 100% of the shares of the company, 
that company now no longer has a federal income tax obligation? That's correct. And, and in most states, no state income tax. Now, the state of Florida is unique because we've got federal, but we have no state tax. So for Florida, the federal, but so let's just say hypothetically, a company's EBITDA or net profits is $2 million, just making this up. Mm-hmm. They would not pay any taxes on that. That's a and a, we talked in our first conversation, yeah. and the reason I couldn't get over this is because we're talking just to kind of nerd out on financial performance for a second. A lot of these companies might be generating, say, ten to fifteen percent. Let's call it a, a really healthy company that's getting ready to exit. Maybe they got a couple different avenues, a couple different options to exit. ESOPs one, maybe getting rolled up into private equities, another going out to market and finding a buyer. And mm-hmm. they're going to get a good valuation because maybe they're doing like 15% net income before tax. Mm-hmm. Well, 15% sounds great, but Uncle Sam's going to come in and want 4 to 5% of that right off the top. So 4 to 5%, if we're talking about a $10 million company, you're talking about $500,000, dollars $500,000 that that company doesn't have to send to Uncle Sam and can use to reinvest back into the business. And that's where I was like, these ESOPs have a tremendous competitive advantage when they don't have the overhead, so to speak, quote unquote, of having to pay taxes. And that statement that you're making coincides with you and I have talked about how sometimes some people say, well, the company, the seller's just selling it to himself. Well, no, the, we're using a leveraged financial transaction, either through conventional SBA or seller financing. But that additional debt that the company takes on, it's highly flexible. The seller can determine what the proper time frame is in consultation with the experts that we're working with. But then in addition, you've got the ability to be able to pay off that debt very quickly as a tax-exempt company. So many of the transactions we're working on right now, we're looking to typically pay off all debt within four to five years. Wow. That's extraordinary. Four-year payback period. Four to five years where during that time period, you know, we're talking about even going back to a financial institution one more time. So we have the initial transaction and then the secondary transaction within a period of two to three years. So that within the period of that five years, all financing has been paid back. And I'm, I'm an advocate for the future management of the company to really envision going forward what the ESOP can do. Because as a tax-exempt company, if you're in the construction trades, if you're in professional services, if you're in, in HVAC, air conditioning, as a tax-exempt company, you could actually use it to buy out your competitors, mm. or you could use it to buy out other owners in your industry who are looking to retire. And we're already doing that. Mm. So that's what I'm most excited about is, is that I actually see ESOPs as an M&A vehicle for companies that are growth-minded because as tax-exempt, they're able to go forward and deploy all that extra capital that they're not sending to Uncle Sam, and instead they're actually using it as a way to mm. buy products, you know, to put it into capital for, uh, you know, building out their, their business services, whatever that might look like, or they could use it to buy out other companies. It is 
a game changer in my mind. I, I can envision a future 15 or 20 years from now when a lot of this silver tsunami has taken place because you have done a phenomenal job at helping these people get into 100% ESOPs. Trying. It's been a great, it's been a great 15 years for John. Uh, but what I'm thinking of is like when we get involved with a new business, we do kind of a competitive analysis. Who are those competitors and, and what are they better at than us? And I'm just imagining a future where we have to have a column in our due diligence list, you know, and we're doing that competitive analysis of like, oh, this is an ESOP. You know, and we go down and we sit with a business owner and we're like, well, the good news is that you've got, you know, just three major competitors. The bad news is that two of those are ESOPs and they don't pay any federal income tax. That's right. So they, and they, possibly no state income tax. No state income tax. So, you know, we're just talking about the dollars and cents tax cost of it, but you just raised an even better point, which is, oh, and two of those are ESOPs and every one of those managers is all in on that company. Yeah. it's. I would imagine that if you looked at the level of engagement, the level of performance in ESOP-run companies, it has to be a notch higher than in a company that's got a single owner. So we have two national trade associations, the ESOP Association and the National Center for Employee Ownership. Both are highly active with Washington, D.C. And they have been very progressive as it relates to promoting the efficiencies of an ESOP. So much so that there's been a number of studies that came out. Ernst & Young came out with a recent study that highlighted how companies did during COVID and how they were sustained and how the ESOP really provided an overall higher level of benefit of security. And the one thing I, I've seen and heard and talked to is it seems like the younger people, people under 30, they're looking for a shared experience. And of course, you can't, you can't cover it with all people based upon the demographic. But in general, as we talk about this concept, younger people are actually very excited. And true story, it's on my LinkedIn right now. I just posted it last week. We just launched a new ESOP with a company based in Jupiter, Florida. They provide environmental testing. And what happened was the two founders had been managing the company for the past 25 years, and it's time. I had the pleasure of sitting in a room of about 40 employees. They had no idea what was going on. And, and I call it the surprise. Hmm. The surprise is always well, we've sold the company. And you see everybody's like, what? But here's the good news. Here's the new owners. And very often someone will pull a big mirror out and, and shine cool. it back. And, and people are like, it's you. Uh, and so what was really neat about this meeting last week is I want to say the average age, highly technical people, a lot of PhDs, scientists, a lot of questions, <laughs> a lot of questions, more questions I've had in many cases, but, but in doing so, they were excited because when finally they understood that the, the husband and wife are going to stick around for two years, mm. and then they're basically, and during that time, they're going to be building out a management team, and they're going to be bringing people from those, from that very room, people are going to join the team. 
And then when the husband and wife fully retire in two, maybe three years, you know, this this isn't a drop dead, but this is a this is this is something that was passionate for the husband and wife. They could have sold it. They told me, John, we had offers on the table. But we know that if we sell it, we lose control and my employees lose control. The number one reason that employers want to use an ESOP is legacy. It's the fact that as an entrepreneur, they it was the blood, sweat, and toil. And certainly you might be able to get more money from a PE firm or a strategic buyer. I say might, because in many cases you have to pay taxes and sometimes they have clawback provisions. And sometimes the details don't quite come out the same way that was discussed on the front end. But I think the key is, in this case, I'm looking at 40-plus people, and I'm seeing their excitement. And again, you could go to my LinkedIn where you could see their faces. And I was was the one that took the group photo, and people came back to me later, and they said, John, these people are beaming. They're excited. They absolutely are enthralled. And I said, because they know it's in their hands. Hmm. It's interesting when you get up in front of a room and you say, we've sold the company or when, you know, if it's less dramatic than that, there's, you know, the news that we've sold the company, that's the end of a chapter, right? Right. And what you just described is we sold the company and over the next two years, we are going to bring you in and show you how to keep this legacy going. That's the start of something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the opening of a brand new chapter where, like you said, the employees are in control. You could say selling it to a PE firm, that's a brand new chapter too, but that lack of control. Usually it's a different book. (laughs) (laughs) Different objections, different profit centers. And and again, we work with private equity companies. We work with investment bankers. We work with business brokers. But that is simply one strategy where they fit the need based upon what the client is looking for at that point in time. Yeah. Well, you said this desire for legacy, like that's a huge motivation for owners. Is it all different kinds of owners? Is there a point where this doesn't make sense below a certain level or above a certain level? It it, it starts to get out of the sweet spot? Yeah. Well, we certainly know with Publix, 200 to 1,000. So I'd say no. <laughs> no, no upper limit, right? <laughs> and I'd say, but it's certainly on the lower limit. Let me frame it by maybe revenues or earnings. I would say because there are going to be assorted costs on the front end. I don't think an ESOP would be economically viable for a company that has earnings, consistent earnings of less than, let's say, $300,000, okay. $400,000 a year. Okay. So if you used a, a multiple EBITDA model of, let's say, five, five, six times EBITDA, you know, if a company's worth less than $2 million, it, and then you have to look at the number of employees. And- and this is where it gets a little technical. You know, we're working with a company on the East Coast of Florida, just met with them yesterday, a very interesting family-owned company. An S-Corp ESOP probably won't work. Reason is, is you typically need at least 20 employees because just like in 401k testing, you have some non-discrimination rules there's some non-discrimination rules that the government wants to make sure if they're going to give you this 
pro rata tax exemption because it won't, you know, if a company sells 50% as an S corp, they're going to be 50% tax exempt. Gotcha. They sell 100% then they're 100%. But the point is, is the government doesn't want family members to be able to matriculate stock through the ESOP allocation in future years that would go above a certain threshold. Gotcha. So, so you can't use this as a backdoor to just give it to your kids. No, but this same company we met with yesterday, they won't be a good fit to be a tax-free company. But you got the other shoe. We're going to, they fit very comfortably as a C-Corp, as a C-Corp ESOP. So as a C-Corp ESOP, we're still going to be able to do, because they will be taxed, but we will be able to do future stock allocations. Those are IRS tax deductions under code 404. And so that means potentially they could deduct up to 25% of cover payroll each year. Wow. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Well, and, and, and there's another side benefit as a C-Corp ESOP. The seller proceeds could potentially go into a tax-deferred program called 1042 so that the sellers don't have to pay tax proceeds at the time of sale. Well, now you're, you're opening up a whole new can of worms that we could probably record another podcast. <laughs> That's on. a whole other one, but, but, but <laughs> I know. Well, when we talk about the, the sellers, I mean, what, I, what you just said in terms of earnings, 300000 400000 in earnings, $2 million valuation, that's very accessible. It is. I mean, it's very accessible. I mean, because I was thinking, oh, $10 million company. No. But that's... That brings it within the realm of a lot of very small businesses. And thanks to the Main Street Act, we're now able to bring more cash to close. So that's the point is, is this is going to become a very viable program, very cost effective, and provide a meaningful exit strategy that a business owner previously, you know, as I shared with you, Joey, you know, my five, my favorite question, my five favorite words of asking a business owner is, what is your exit strategy? You would think that that would be the scariest question I've ever asked. Most business owners have spent their career building a business, and yet they work so hard, but they give no thought into what happens next. Yeah. And this now gives them the ability in partnership with financial advisors, CPAs, attorneys, management consulting firms, we're able to bring all the pieces together and have a real viable discussion. And by the way, an ESOP is not always the best fit. Yeah, You know, it really comes down to, because one of the key litmus is, is very often on the front end, my team and I will have six, eight, 10 hours of discussion on the front end with business owner and their consultants and and by the way, no funds have no monies, no funds have transferred between any parties. We're simply having discussions. Typically, I've seen it go one of two ways. Either the business owner feels the ESOP isn't the best strategy, they just want to get out. Well, one of my team members who's an ESOP valuation consultant can also be a business valuation consultant. He'll provide a, a formalized business valuation, and then they can hire a business advisor an investment banker and sell the company. That's the normal course that you see sure. in a lot of standard buyouts. But increasingly, we're able to do what's called a feasibility study. And a feasibility study is basically 
think of it as a, a SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And basically it models out a low risk, a medium risk, and a high risk as far as you know what will what the company can afford over the next five, 10 years. And so it's a feasibility of, of the company being able to support an ESOP. And it is within that, that then the ESOP trustee can actually negotiate an actual selling price on behalf of the ESOP trust between the seller and the ESOP trust. I've been part of those negotiations. It's fascinating. That's interesting. So you're kind of dispelling a lot of maybe the the misinformation or the, or the mischaracterization that I've had in the past where one of the knocks against ESOPs that I've heard is, well, yeah, but they saddle the business with a, a bunch of debt and that can actually put this new management team who's responsible, can tie their hands behind their backs because they're having to service the debt and they're not able to have the capital to grow. But what you just said is that part of the establishment of the ESOP is almost like an ability to pay analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to negotiate a price greater than the business's ability to to repay the debt and have the capital it needs elsewhere to continue to meet the goals. So, I would imagine that you know, no ESOP trustee is negotiating to maintain the status quo. I mean, like, let's take every last cent out of the business and and use it to pay off the debt. It's like, no, we we we've experienced growth over the last five years of you know. 10 to 11% annually, and we need to maintain, if not increase that. So we need rainy day funds. We need capital replacement. You need, need working capital. Right. You need you, you you need to make sure the proceeds and are And you're there. saying all that gets negotiated into the purchase price, given assumptions about the financing that's going to be available in the terms of and seller note and all of that. Absolutely. And and so what happens is is, is that nothing happens in in a vacuum. You're, you're working on real-time information. We recognize that, you know, a company's, the question that comes up all the time is, well, John, when have you seen an ESOP fail? And there's been notable examples where I think companies get themselves in trouble is when they use an inside ESOP trustee. That's something we never like to see. So what is an inside versus someone that's inside the company? We feel that it's a direct conflict of interest. So we say, well, CFO, he's a very trustworthy guy. He's going to be sticking around for another 10 years. We'll make him the trustee of this. Okay. It's kind of self-dealing where we really prefer an independent trustee. We call it an arm's length transaction to make sure that from the actual sell price that it's done in such a way that, you know, not only the debt burden is is able to be managed over the next two years, four years, six years, but at the same time that the expectations between the seller and the ESOP trustee are in alignment for the future success of the company. It makes a lot of sense. Is that a hard sell when you're going into these companies or is it has the internal here's, just been a default? Yeah, here's the hard sell. The hard sell is right away, the seller is thinking, well, great, now I've got someone watching over my shoulder. The biggest thing I tell people and I've seen this in action, is the ESOP trustee is a professional, usually with a CPA background, someone that understands financial sheets, uh, balance sheets, P&Ls, and able to really look at the overall health of the company. But they have a fiduciary responsibility to the ESOP trust and the employees within the ESOP trust. So their responsibility is there. They are not 
going to be overlooking the shoulders of the owner, you know, of the of the management team on an ongoing basis. So what happens is is that typically an ESOP trustee will be invited to maybe a quarterly or semi-annual board meeting. The ESOP trustee typically will make comments, and if invited, can weigh in on on some decisions that the management team or the board of directors is making. But these ESOP trustees, whether they're individuals or they're corporate trustees, these trustees historically shouldn't have a lot of involvement on the day-to-day. And so once a management team or board of directors understands that, then they feel very comfortable moving forward with that outside trustee. But again, all the deals that we've worked on, we always have an outside trustee. I'm trying to think of the idea of a fiduciary responsible and an ESOP trustee is new to me. So I'm thinking of, okay, what other fiduciary relationships am I familiar with? And probably the easiest one, the most common is like a financial manager. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have somebody who's an independent registered investment advisor, they have a fiduciary responsibility and yeah, they can't control what you do with your money. Mm -hmm. They're there to advise you. And that fiduciary responsibility says that they always have to act in your best interest. Right. And so there may be a time when I hire a, a fiduciary to help me with my financial investments. And I'm saying, well, I want to do, I want to do 90% of my portfolio in Bitcoin. Or my brother has an offshore cannabis. I've had people approach me on that right? lately. <laughs> and that's so much recently, but maybe a year ago. Yeah. And my financial advisor is saying, I don't think that's a good idea. Right. I'm looking out for you. I'm giving you the best advice I can. And my my desires may run so in the face of what they think is reasonable and responsible that that trustee, that fiduciary, may say, you know what, you're not the best client for me. I'm going to choose to back away from this relationship. And here's a couple people. And so I, I would imagine in a situation like that, I, as the, you know, if I'm a rational individual, I may be like, whoa, maybe I'm way off base. You That's know, right. I, I, this person is pretty smart. I've asked them to help me look out and now they're walking away from the table. And I would, do you think there's a similar dynamic? There is, there's a, there's identical view that the ESOP trustee is out there at the discretion of the board of directors, but at the same time, the ESOP trustee is there of his own delegation as well, meaning that if for some reason he does feel that the company is going in a bad direction, he could always resign as an ESOP trustee. An ESOP trustee has the fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the valuation is maintained within the company. He has that legal responsibility. So each year, the company has to be valued by an ESOP valuation expert. And then the ESOP trustee has to sign off on that valuation. That's the fiduciary risk of the ESOP trustee. So for some reason, there's a drop-off in performance. Sales are down. Maybe expenses went up or a combination of factors. If you see this, if you see the stock price go down, that that you know there's very good reasons. But if there's a precipitous drop, and the ESOP trustee, you know, again, he's not controlling the company, right? But if there's things happening that they feel that uh, they can't be a part of, they could always resign. 
And that would be a warning signal yeah. to the to the management team and the board of directors. Well, and I would imagine so, all those other shareholders in the trust, right? All absolutely. The, the person on the line or that salesperson who's out on the road is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are the employees yeah. of the company? Right. So what I like about ESOPs is there's strong safeguards formulated by the Department of Labor to ensure that you have a transaction where you've got counterparty risk. Counterparty in the sense that you've got the seller and then the negotiated sale price with the ESOP trustee. Once that then, then that's been completed and assuming the seller then is leaving within the first few years, then that ESOP trustee is going to be working with either quarterly or semi-annual with the management team or board of directors. And so there's going to be lots of communication. The best relationships exist where the ESOP trustee is friendly, helpful, and engaging with management because we all want to see the success. Yeah, and I think, you know, you look at the horror stories or the, the failures, and I would imagine those probably don't line up very well with the types of situations you'd started the discussion with of continuing legacy, turning the mirror around and saying, you guys now own the company, and and right. here's the person, here's the ESOP trustee that we have engaged to help us through this process. And this is, you know, I, I can see that person being an invaluable resource to an eager board of, of managers who are wanting to take the company to the next level. I would think that in cases where it had gone south, there were ulterior, ulterior motives that made themselves known or could have been known at the beginning. And that doesn't line up very well with what your day-to-day experience is. Yeah, and I think we we're also trying to underwrite and look at companies that, that we understand what their business model is. Where's their business coming from? You know, where I think in like any type of strategic buyout, there would be a high risk that if a company was a manufacturer, but their main client was 80%, that's a risk. Yeah. You know, so all of a sudden, if that client went away, though, though all that revenue goes away. So, you know, we try to understand the business model. And, and let me be real clear too, an ESOP can work in many different type of industries. Right now, my team and I, we're, this is kind of exciting, we're at the cutting edge of working with financial advisory firms. Hmm. So professional services, where financial advisors have come together and they're in active discussion with us to use that as a business succession tool. It can also work with medical firms. We've had number of examples of dental service organizations, medical services organizations, and other type of medical practices. We're still in negotiations with an anesthesiologist group in the state of Florida where we're talking to the partners. And sometimes it's like herding cats. Doctors? <laughs> lawyers? What are you talking about? Yeah. Well, I'll talk about lawyers. They're <laughs> a little bit different than doctors, but but in this group of anesthesiologists, the older partners love it. The younger partners like it, but they just have a lot more questions. So we haven't gotten everybody. But by the way, the discussions are still ongoing. That's been two years. So that's what's nice is sometimes it takes a while to help people get along. Now, I've you mentioned lawyers. The only group that we're aware of, at least in the state of Florida, and we think there might be a workaround solution is this is that the state of Florida, according to a friend of mine who's an attorney who contacted the Florida bar, that they require someone with a 
you know, be licensed with the bar to be able to be, uh, to, you know, to, to basically manage the company, the principal. So within that structure, we thought initially maybe an ESOP wouldn't work, but maybe we need to look at a holding company structure. You know, we're, we're exploring that still. So even when we heard no, we're still kind of exploring of, are there other entities that we could utilize that potentially can make it work? So what's nice is there's a lot of different firms, both manufacturing, agricultural, and professional services, and just general services. I'm, I'm pretty much amazed at the types of clients that we've been working with from plumbing supply companies to water management companies to HVAC companies. I mean, it's almost like an endless list. Well, you, you brought up the two, this discussion has been going for two years. What is a typical time frame? You know, if somebody says, I am, I like the idea of legacy. I like the idea of a couple years, you know, to, to mm-hmm. get that leadership team fully functioning and fully up to speed and get a relationship going with the fiduciary. But I'm also, you know, I'm 68, 69 years old. How long is this going to take? How quickly can it proceed? And, and Or somebody who says, I'm 48 and I know that this is something that I want to do. I don't know if it's better to do it sooner or later. Like, give us some idea of time yeah. frame, how long these things I think take. I, I think the quickest from, from the initial discussions to the point of doing the feasibility study, then to doing the the memorandum letter to take it out to all the financial firms, you know, to see if we could get good favorable financing. And then you have a closing and then you have a launch meeting, typically minimum six months, really closer nine to 12 months. Okay. I think that's, that sounds pretty quick. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. Six months is like highly motivated yeah. and there's some tax deduction reasons that we want to try gotcha. to get things in before year end to capture it. Okay. But for the most part, you know, here's a good example is, is that there's an engineering company we're working with right now, slightly behind the surveying company as far as closing. But I met with the owner and the financial advisor a week before Christmas. We had a discussion. He got me financials. I forwarded it to, to the team. And we had a series of discussions almost three months ago at my office. We, we had a feasibility study. Oh, and at the same time, this gentleman bought another engineering company. Of course he did. Because that's what's happening is <laughs> yeah. engineers are yeah. retired and he's young enough that he he wants to go another five, 10 years because he really loves what he does. And he's actually, when I was talking about using the ESOP as an M&A model, he was in my mind as I spoke about that because he wants to potentially grow this to be a, a large, you know, whether it's statewide, regional or national he sees the potential flexibility that would give him access to grow this as large as he wants and still maintain 100. So even though he's selling 100%, he's going to maintain full control. And he's going to be around for at least the next eight, eight to 10 years. So, you know, as long as his health holds out. And in the meantime, we'll be building up a management team around him. So there's nothing that says the owner has to be out no. in two or three years. No, okay. no. In fact, there's a construction company we're working with that they've been around for six years. And one of the partners is getting ready to kind of step down in the next year or so, but the other partners in his early thirties. And we're looking at actually 
selling 100% to the ESOP, become a tax exempt, and for the next 20, 30 years, riding this up to become one of the preeminent construction firms in Florida as an M&A vehicle. Interesting. I, w- I would wonder too, so you talk about M&As and if you're leveraging those transactions, postulating, hypothesizing, sure. but I would imagine that potential partners, financing partners would look at an ESOP and securing an ES- a loan with an ESOP trust maybe a little bit more favorably than they would an individual owner that's going to provide personal guarantees you know, against their $5 million beach house or, or whatnot. Yeah. Now, I think that's right. What what we've been seeing is we've had a number of existing clients where they became an ESOP, in many cases, 100% ESOP or a 50-50 ESOP between the, so the seller retains 50% and then the ESOP owns 50%. And then a couple of years later, a private equity company came in and bought everything. Hmm. The there aren't many times that the participants within an ESOP can vote, but that is one of the times when there's a tender offer, the ESOP trustee will take it out to the employees who have allocated shares within the ESOP and they get to vote. It's my experience that the vast percentage of these go through Yeah, because what we're finding is the PE is becoming in with such a high multiple. And, and here's the thing is PEs love they love ESOPs because the, the the studies have shown, we've seen this, whether it's Ernst & Young and others, that the, the modality, the profitability, just the overall quality of work, the productivity skyrockets under an ESOP because everyone feels a shared value. But when a PE comes in and buys out an existing ESOP, you know, what's nice is for everybody within the ESOP, they're going to get a much higher multiple because they've got their allocation of stock and now it's going to be worth a lot more. And now they get to roll it into either a 401k or an IRA. So it's a non-taxable event. Oh, wow. That's huge. So right. I'm a I'm a 38-year-old employee at this company and I've got shares allocated because I've been there yep. during this ESOP and now I'm going to get a payday. Yep. I'm going to keep, hopefully I'm coming back to work tomorrow at the same place, Yep. but I don't have a tax bill. And I have a liquid 401k or or IRA account that takes a lot of the anxiety about eventual retirement or future financial security out of the off the table. That's very very interesting. So in a in a in a in an interesting way, even though we talk about legacy, we live in a democracy, and participants and employees get to vote with their feet. So just like the seller, they had. They had options. They were able to sell to a strategic buyer or an ESOP. The ESOP participants have the ability to accept an offer in kind. And if it's a substantial offer, my experience is that most participants will take it. Hmm. Very good. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about is there's this perception that it's expensive. Hmm. You know, you, talk, you you alluded to some upfront costs. Maybe that factors into you know, it factors into below a certain level, you know, you're asking a company to shoulder a significant, but I mean, what are, how expensive is it, all things considered? You know, it, it depends upon whether I call a sell-side advisor is involved or not. Okay. We can work with sell-side advisors, but very often the type of deals we've been doing lately, particularly on the smaller side, is there is no sell-side advisor. 
So you're saying somebody who's earning a commission for bringing this deal to the exactly. table. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So so typically the people I work with are representing the ESOP trust at One America. I'm, I'm what's called an ESOP administrator, or as Joey, as I like to say, we're the glue that holds everything together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. We, we, we take the documents that the ESOP attorney drafted. We take all the provisions. We put it on our ESOP administration system, and we manage the ESOP as far as initial eligibility. When can people join the ESOP? we provide the allocation back out. So each of us have a role. And within each ESOP, you're going to have an ESOP trustee. You're going to have an ESOP attorney. You're going to have an ESOP valuation expert. And you're going to have an ESOP administrator. Those are the four principal roles on the ESOP side. And except for the ESOP attorney, the ESOP trustee, the ESOP valuation expert, and the ESOP administrator, those are going to be annual reoccurring fees. Okay. Then you have, on the sell side, you're always going to have a corporate attorney involved. Why? Because we want legal representation of someone representing the seller. And typically, they're going to put together board resolutions. They might do the closing binder. They, they might do some different amendments and other type of changes necessary to make this a legal transaction. And in doing so, we feel, and that's really more of a one-time fee. Gotcha. So the attorneys are more one-time fees or fees as needed as changes need to, need to be drafted within the underlying plan documents. But by doing this, we're able to really spell out to the client exactly what type of fees they could expect and, you know, we've been hearing from plan sponsors, especially if there's potentially a sell-side advisor involved, anywhere from 5 to 10% commission. They don't use the word commission, but we call it, they call it a success fee. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Which and, is another and, word for a very expensive commission. <laughs> and, 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 and then in addition, they might even put in some backside clauses that allows them to participate in the future gain called stock appreciation rights. So it, it's fine. Everybody has to make their fees, but the question is, is, is there a meaningful way to do it? And, and if we do work with an investment banker or, or a business broker or the PE, all parties are aware of everything going on. And if the client's fine with that, but what we're finding is most investment bankers and private equity they have no interest in companies typically under 15, 20 million dollars of, of, you know, of a, st a strategic company, you know, particularly under 10 million. Okay. You know, that really falls in the realm of the business broker, business advisor. Gotcha. And the business broker, we've had good discussions with them. We've worked with some of them, but a lot of them are tend to represent owners who are looking to just get out. So I think that this is a happy medium that we're able to bring to formation the ability to help a business owner control their destiny, decide what they want the deal to look like, and be able to control all the particulars for as long as they want to do. This has been very interesting. I've learned even more. <laughs> but I would imagine that even it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. And if somebody were out there and they're like, well, I learned something new about ESOPs while listening to this podcast, but I'm a long ways from knowing everything I need to. 
What should they do? How can they get a hold of you? What should the next step be? Joey, first of all, thanks. This has been fabulous. I love being able to help people understand something after administering 401ks, 403bs for the past 30 plus years. ESOPs have really helped me at this stage of my career to help bring a meaningful solution to business owners. Best way to contact me is they could reach me via my email. It's john.mcguire at oneamerica.com. That's J-O-H-N dot McGuire, M-C-G-U-I-R-E at oneamerica, O-N-E-A-M-E-R-I-C-A dot com. Otherwise, please feel free to look at my LinkedIn postings. You could look at John McGuire, pull me up, you know, and, and, and you should be able to find me at One America and you could direct message me that way as well. I'll vouch for the LinkedIn profile. Everybody should to connect with John on LinkedIn. It looks like you're having way more fun than you should be <laughs> having in your day job. Do a great job of posting updates. And I, one thing I commend you on is that when you are posting, you are highlighting the people other than yourself. You're highlighting the advisors that you're working with. You're highlighting the companies, the employees that you work with. It's obvious that you get a great deal of joy out of working with this. And, and it, I love what you said there at the end of after decades of doing 401, 403B administration, it sounds like there's a meaning in this that is really scratching your itch to make a difference in the small business world. Yeah, I think in closing, when I first got started, 401ks were a new investment vehicle. They only came about on January 1st of 1980. I got in the business in 90, 1987 after graduating college. And I, I was selling both group health insurance and 401ks. And I really didn't like going back to business owners, telling them why their premiums went up 25 to 50%. <laughs> and yet I could actually help the baby boomers save. So in a strange way, I've seen the baby boomers save. I've seen America save. And now we're at a point where we need to de-risk and de-accumulate for the baby boom generation. It just fits my ethos. And I'm at a great point in my career where I've been, you know, one of the reasons I came to One America was I knew that they had an ESOP division and it was something I really wanted to develop over the last four years. Great. Well, we will put all of links to John's information in the show notes and also some references to some of the things that we talked about. And thanks again for being here. Thanks, Joey. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. We'll see you next week. 